I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather, it's more of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. Maybe a little background on the actors, something thrown in on the director, and if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you get half an amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I hope that you would, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. This week, we are continuing our month's theme, What Were They Thinking?, It's our selection of films that all feature some questionable judgment on the part of their creators. On that note, we're pleased to bring you the 1985 sci-fi horror film classic, Life Force. Join us! You know, like anything worth studying... The more films one watches, the greater understanding one gets to have for the evolution both of the field and just of the artist that leads to the current version of what they are seeing. This week's selection was something that I had first viewed in high school, and while I did enjoy it when I saw it, I didn't rightly appreciate it, at least not in the way I should have. This film is a direct homage to the classic British Hammer horror pictures, but it was done with a 1980s sensibility, which some would argue creates a pacing problem, and to that I would say you're wrong. It actually works just the way it is. I personally didn't really get into Hammer horror until I had started my time as an undergrad in college, and after going back and watching this film with new eyes after spending some time watching classics, I can see the direct links it is making to classic Quartermass series as done by the Hammer Pictures. And it has only made me enjoy this film more. It's clear the director was having a thrill getting to set his story in jolly old London and to make his own non-canon entry into the Hammer series even though it was to have a title that was rather ridiculous. Well, at least at first. The Space Vampires had a lot of potential, but to understand it, and how it got made, and how it became this week's film, we have to go back to the beginning. And to do that, we need to talk about a classic story. A story about family, Loyalty, Barbecue, and Power Tools. It all started with the moist chuckle of a chainsaw. 
horror in the heartland, perpetrated by a deranged clan of cannibals who had staked out a stretch of rural Texas to hunt for victims. Thus, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released to the public. It was shocking, it was bold, and in 1973 it gave us a new face in the horror genre and managed to launch the career of director Toby Hooper. Loosely using elements based on the actual crimes committed by Ed Gein in the mid-1950s, it would use the same source material that Hitchcock culled from when he was making Psycho, although it steered its tail in a very different direction. Hooper, a Texas native who was able to create a story that focused on the macabre, isolation, struck a balance by intimating brutal violence without actually showing gore and viscera. Seriously, I know a lot of people are going to think I'm kidding with this. Go back and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're not going to see buckets of blood. It's actually a rather chaste film in almost all aspects. Graphic violence always happens off screen or is obscured from the viewer's view. The cuts are so quick and the tension is so expertly utilized, audiences walk away thinking the film is far worse than it actually is. All because imagined horror is far worse than anything that director Hooper could have shown. And he knew that. It's a fantastic strength for a director to have. And in Hooper's case, it put him on the cinematic map. He purposely shot that film to have PG levels of action and violence, and the MPAA came back and gave him an X rating regardless. The decision would eventually be changed to an R rating, but suddenly this plucky kid from Austin found himself hailed as an overnight sensation. His movie that was made for an estimated $140,000 went on to gross $30 million at the box office. And suddenly, a horror star was born. This guy is good. So, Hooper followed up Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the half-baked 1976 horror film, Eaten Alive. It's just a simple southern gothic tale about a crazed hotel owner who feeds unfortunate guests to his pet crocodile. And that's a big distinction. It is not an alligator. Get it right. And he keeps that crocodile in the swamp out back, but it can swim up under you know, his establishment where he can quickly drop people through the floor. It's bizarre. It's not very good. But it found its way onto the video nasties list. That's going to be a history lesson for the other day, but the long and the short of it is it existed in the UK, and that meant, although it may not have been an actual good movie, by virtue of it being banned in various European countries, it suddenly became a thing that people were clamoring to see. Here in the States, it was a slight hiccup, though, because Hooper was really about to make a bigger splash. You see, after he finished Eaten Alive, he was tapped to direct the TV miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot, which made its debut on CBS in November of 1978. It's tense, 
it's scary, and it was a smash, receiving positive reviews and being hailed as some of the best work you could see on TV for a made-for-TV movie, and one of the best at the time adaptations of Stephen King's work. 1981, he followed it up with The Fun House. It was a gory slasher meets monster flick, which again, did okay at the box office, but, you know, it didn't have much going for it until again, it as well was picked up and being selected as being part of the Video Nasties group, again, that boosted its profile when it came to rentals as it, you know, would roll on through the decade of the 80s. When will people learn if you tell folks not to watch something, you're automatically making people turn to go seek it out? Now, what in the world is wrong with that, Mrs. Simpson? There's nothing wrong with it. Excuse me. Excuse me. He was addressing me. I know. There's nothing wrong with it. Excuse me. There is. I think that it's a bad influence on children. Give me a break. I think that is a bunch of baloney. And here's why. In preparing for this debate, I did a little research and I discovered a startling thing. There was violence in the past long before cartoons were invented. I see. Fascinating. Yeah, and there was something called the Crusades, for instance. Tremendous violence. Many people killed. The darn thing went on for 30 years. And this was before cartoons were invented. Oh, that's right, Kent. So much for your viewpoint. Based on all this success, a potent cocktail of fame, trouble, and weirdness all surrounded Hooper's next project. The intriguing and infamous film Poltergeist from 1982. Now, there is plenty to get into about the film Poltergeist itself, and undoubtedly there will be a future episode on it. But there's just too much weirdness and fallout that occurred both on the film and in the years afterwards, not to mention at least some of it now. But for the purposes at least of today, I'm only going to focus on Hooper's involvement as the director of the project. Shockingly, when it comes to discussing even who was the actual director on Poltergeist, people who worked on set all seem to have different opinions as well. Poltergeist began as a pitch made by Hooper to Universal Studios after he turned down an offer from Spielberg to direct Night Skies, which was a treatment involving murderous aliens that had been floating around Hollywood since the late 1970s, conceived by Spielberg himself. Spielberg then floated it past a number of directors who all for various reasons turned him down. He shopped it around, but over time, Night Skies eventually morphed into a more gentle and nuanced concept, and would become the building blocks of Spielberg's film, E.T. Yet Spielberg still retained hope that somehow he could get a horrific project off the ground. One could argue that over the years the concepts were revisited through other films like Gremlins and Critters, but the treatment for Night Skies never evolved past what it was, just a concept. Hooper was not interested in said treatment, so he did turn down the offer to make that film, but he countered back to Spielberg with an idea, a more supernatural one, an average family terrorized by menacing ghosts rather than aliens. Spielberg loved the concept and was really excited about it. In truth, he wanted to direct it himself. But, unfortunately for him, he was handcuffed by a contractual clause that kept him from directing another movie while E.T. was still in the works. 
Seeing this, though, as an opportunity, Spielberg decided to use his influence to get the picture financed and rolling by getting Universal to come on board and by saying he would be a producer on the new Poltergeist film, making Hooper the hired director. Spielberg then showed up almost every day on set to make sure things were going, quote-unquote, according to plan. Some went as far to claim that he directed the majority of the film, with Hooper essentially acting as his own assistant director, or at least being a puppet director under Spielberg's constant eye, effectively just pulling some sort of bait-and-switch on the poor guy. Hmm, a bait-and-switch. If only there was a storyline that involved a really important bait-and-switch. You moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Why? Why? Some involved say that Spielberg was just overly enthusiastic and was just there to help guide his vision. Because, hey, at this point, the story credit for the film did go to Spielberg. He was very much involved, but for all intents and purposes, Hooper was the director setting up, blocking the shots, calling action and cut, although he himself would admit he did fully half of the storyboards. But one could again chalk that up to Spielberg just being involved in the conversation. Regardless of who you'd like to believe, all parties do agree that Hooper bore Spielberg's influence slash micromanagement with dignity and grace. The exception is actress Zelda Rubinstein, who in 2007 gave an interview to Ain't It Cool News where she claimed that Spielberg was really running the show the entire time and intimating that Hooper was often indisposed due to, quote, unacceptable chemical agents being used. That has been somewhat refuted by other actors on the set as well. I will say this, the Directors Guild of America did end up opening an investigation into just how much of the film that Hooper was involved with, since the studio was using Spielberg's name to sell the product, and Spielberg himself was claiming authorship over the film's entire concept. Arbitration later awarded an additional $15,000 to Hooper to be paid out by the studio in a punitive measure for placing larger credit on the entire process and giving it to Spielberg in the promotions and in the trailers for the film, something that Hooper seems to have quietly fought for and very much agreed with. By the end of 1982, Poltergeist had grossed $121.7 million against a modest budget of $10 million. And Hooper, irrespective of who had actually had more involvement in directing the film, could now essentially write his own ticket for any project he chose to take on. So, you have complete freedom. What does Hooper do? He gets into bed with the Cannon Group. That would be Cannon Group Incorporated, the infamous, infamous bad boys of cinema, helmed by Manahem Golan and Yoram Globus. 
He got locked into a three-picture deal with them at the height of their low-rent empire, flooding the market with cheaply made films, which would become video store staples for the next two decades. For the purposes of brevity, I'm just going to gloss over the deep history of canon and promise that we'll all get to it in a later episode, but I can tell you this. This three-picture deal would seal Hooper's fate as being a cult director and create some of his most iconic works, but it would also mark the last three pictures that he would get to make that would have any real relevance in the scope of his career, and the next 25 years would essentially be downhill from there. Cannon at the time was officially trying to move out of being this Hollywood outsider studio and firmly established themselves as major players amongst the other studios in the system. And hitching themselves to a hot director like Hooper and bringing him into the tent, they thought this would be a win for them. Why would Hooper take it? Why would he work with these guys? Well, Cannon would give him a flat set rate. In this case, this week's film, Cannon said, here is $25 million, go play. And Hooper, after all the micromanagement and everything he had been through, couldn't turn down that level of creative control. $25 million. So what do you do? You decide to make a movie called The Space Vampires. On paper, all of this looks impressive. While Hooper was not the first director offered this role, when he came on board, he was looking at a production that had some grade A talent. You have Dan O'Bannon and Don Jacoby on script, which they were adapting from a very successful 1976 Colin Wilson pulp novel simply titled The Space Vampires. It's an homage to Lovecraft. The book focuses on astronauts in the late 21st century that discover some humanoid figures in suspended animation in space and bring them back to Earth, only to discover that they feed off the life force of other beings, causing panic when they escape from their containment. Not bad, but in typical fashion with an O'Bannon script. I mean, previously this guy's worked on Dark Star, Alien, Dead and Buried, and Blue Thunder. He's tightening up the story and giving it some real edge. For special effects, Hooper had John Dykstra. He was a founding member of Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, over at Lucasfilm. And really, as far as we should be concerned, he is the cinematic father of space dogfights and lightsabers. At this point in his career, he had just gotten done with having a falling out with Lucas, and he had gone on to win multiple Academy Awards for his visual effects in other projects. It would be his task to create the various space imagery as well as design these forms, and then be involved with the zombified husks of the drained victims. In that department, he excelled. Rounding out production, this film was scored by the great Henry Mancini, creating an off-putting dark atonal score that highlighted the very tomb-like strangeness of the vampire ship. Now, 
on to the cast. You have Steve Railsback positioned here as the lead, playing a haunted astronaut. Railsback was known for his many made-for-TV films and various miniseries, most notably playing Charles Manson in the 1976 adaptation of Helter Skelter. Up until that point, he had done some low-budget genre pictures, including Trick or Treats and Turkey Shoot. But now, he was going to be helming an official American studio release. And to his credit, he does a decent job here with what the material is. Important to note, while he'd been in other films up until this point, fellow actor Sir Patrick Stewart has for the first time a rather sizable role in a film playing psychiatrist Dr. Armstrong. Look, I'm going to be flat out honest. This movie stars Peter Firth, Frank Finley, and Michael Gothard in supporting roles, but nobody remembers that. And here's the reason why. They're all fantastic actors, but the reason why no one else sticks out in this film is because Life Force stars the beautiful Matilda May, who was all of 19 when she shot this picture. Shakespeare could have, on camera, clawed his way out of the grave, walked across the background singing God Save the Queen, and it would not have mattered in the slightest. For you see, in a bold and astonishing choice, May spends the entire film completely nude. Although, truth be told, her walking across the shots with her full frontal nudity only accounts for approximately about eight full minutes of film out of an hour and 40 minutes. More than enough time, though, to make this film a hot rental commodity for teenage boys over the subsequent decades. May couldn't even speak English when they hired her. She was forced to learn all of her lines phonetically, which actually ended up making for a more haunting and otherworldly performance. Concerning the nudity, at the beginning it was embarrassing, but then I got used to it, I think. And I was, there's a, considering my very young age at the time, I think there was a great part of my unconsciousness that obviously today I would never ever do that. And today still I wonder how I managed to do such a thing, really. Production did have some issues as Hooper went over scheduling in the shooting. What was supposed to take 17 weeks had ballooned into 22, and partly because key scenes that were skipped in the beginning of filming had to be done after the fact, and you couldn't complete the film without them. Hooper had a hell of a time getting the picture done towards the end, because actors stopped showing up because they weren't getting paid. Once the film was finally in the can, editors discovered that they had their work cut out for them. For starters, May's nudity was causing a bit of a problem, and creative use of post-production shadowing had to be applied in certain scenes to block what you could see of her body to avoid an X rating from the censors. The film's length also became a problem. Case in point, Hooper's opening scene from the space shuttle The Churchill Discovering the vampire ship, that took over a half hour of the film, and while it's visually stunning, that first half hour does not move the plot along at all. 
when Hooper presented the film to Cannon, against his wishes, they decided to cut the entire start of the film down, condensing the space scenes to a little more than 12 minutes, and then using it as a segue to jump back to action happening on Earth. One of the last hard changes would come when Cannon decided that the title was just too silly and screamed drive-in movie. So this film was renamed from The Space Vampires to the more simple and elegant Life Force. But hey, you've been ever so patient now. Why don't we get to the trailer? A joint British-American space shuttle mission to observe the passing of Halley's Comet, yeah, I, I know, it's a little on the nose, uncovers a gigantic 150-mile-long spaceship that appears to look like a strange bioengineered ship, sort of an umbrella-like form that has hooked protrusions that is traveling within the coma of the comet. A number of the crew end up boarding the craft to investigate, and they find the ship is just chocked full of desiccated bodies of these large bat-like aliens, as well as three darn right perfect humanoids that are encased in glass containers. Two men and one woman, apparently all in some deep form of hibernation. The crew end up taking the humanoids with them and return to their shuttle, the Churchill, for a return trip to Earth. Bodies. Three bodies. Perfectly preserved. They look to me to be like an 
problem. The Churchill never makes it. The inside of the ship has been gutted by a fire, and the shuttle crashes back to Earth, only to have those here discover the entire crew dead, and the escape pod and team leader, Colonel Tom Carlson, that Steve rails back, are missing. Oddly enough, the three humanoids contained in their isolation tanks, they've survived this ordeal without a scratch. They're taken to London to be analyzed and autopsied by the European Space Research Center. At least, that is the plan, until the female humanoid wakes up and drains the life force out of her guards. And then she decides to shapeshift and quietly stroll off into the night unseen. Her male companions then wake up and begin to violently break out of the facility as well, and in the ensuing gunfire and explosions, both of them are thought to be destroyed. Keyword, thought. Now you see, Colonel Carlson is indeed found having crash-landed in Texas, where he is immediately sent back to London to explain what happened. He gives his briefing under hypnosis. Carlson had been receiving telepathic contact from the female and was compelled while on the Churchill to open her container, whereby she drained a little bit of his life force before she turned on the rest of the crew. Realizing he could not let such a threat loose on Earth, Carlson intentionally sabotaged the Churchill by way of fire and escaped in the pod, hoping to destroy the vampire and stop any further loss of life. He explains to fellow Colonel Kane, as played by Firth, that these entities have the ability to shapeshift and possess the bodies of others. After possessing a human, they're all but a husk a delivery system for the vampire to pilot. 
reports start to come in that the female was last spotted and made contact with by the staff of a psychiatric hospital outside of Yorkshire, and both Carlson and Kane head out to find her. The young soldiers, who have had their life force drained upon the trio's escape, have been slowly turning into shriveled, zombified husks, desperate themselves to drain life forces from those around them, which continues to spread the condition. After so many hours of not being able to feed, they explode violently in a cloud of dust and ash, shaking the military scientists on the scene to the core. transformed the victims need regular infusions of energy otherwise otherwise what Upon reaching the hospital, they're greeted by Dr. Armstrong, as played by Patrick Stewart, who announces that he will take them to speak to the young lady, but he is quickly grabbed and sedated by Kane and Carlson. Realizing that Armstrong has been possessed by the female, the two colonels think they have the upper hand in the situation and attempt to interrogate the entity, which is indeed temporarily slowed down from the sedatives they've administered to her host's body, but she still manages to have the upper hand on the both of them. What do you want from me? I love you. What are you? Why are you so human? So perfect? What are the bird creatures on the ship? Our bodies are unimportant. As you and your men have approached in your ship, we change them for you. We entered your minds and found their new bodies. I took my shape from your mind. I took your language. I became the woman I found there in your deepest thoughts, your deepest needs. I am the feminine in your mind, Carlson. Where are you? 
As they board the helicopter to return to London, reports begin to pour in that rampant energy vampirism is spreading, with zombified husks of victims continually stealing life force from each other, spreading the disease and the panic throughout the city. The two males were never killed, and this entire chase for the female was a distraction to allow them to exponentially spread their plague. A possessed Armstrong begs Carlson to return to her, to be with her and kisses him before completely exiting the body in a torrent of blood, killing the good doctor and stunning the two colonels as they watch helplessly. The two men didn't die. They jumped to the bodies of the two soldiers who shot them and transformed the soldiers' bodies into their own likenesses. That's the difference between them and their victims. The victims can't leave their bodies. Only the original three can do that. But I killed one of them. One of which? One of the two male vampires. One of the transformed ones. How did you kill him, Falada? How? The old way, Carlson. A leaded metal shaft penetrating not through the heart, but through the energy center two inches below the heart. Not steel, but leaded iron. Right, Carlson? Are you there, Carlson? Yes. Carlson? You too, Kane. It is my belief that the vampires of legend came from creatures such as these. Perhaps even from these very creatures. I know it sounds incredible. Do you hear me, Carlson? It's more than a belief, Falada. It's true. Carlson and Kane return to find London in chaos, with the military attempting to shoot husks before they can infect people further. And worse yet, the alien ship has appeared in the skies over the city of London, absorbing the life force that is being passed up from the female vampire, who in turn is receiving her power from the other two feeding males. Back at headquarters, Dr. Falada, as played by Finlay, is desperate to try and stem the tide. He finds himself facing down one of the two male vampires. After bullets fail, the good doctor desperately grabs an ornamental sword and manages to kill the creature with it. Surmising that this is not the first time these creatures have visited our world, and this must be where the origins of humanity's folklore with vampires came from. Thus, weapons of leaded iron can be used to fight them. Mortally wounded from his encounter, he manages to find Colonel Kane and give him the sword before dying. By now, Carlson has been drawn to the female like a moth to a flame, and he finds her at St. Paul's Cathedral, lying in repose on the altar, transferring all of her absorbed energy up to the ship. Explaining to Carlson that they are now bonded from their initial pairing, 
Carlson finds himself hypnotized by her, shedding his clothes and embracing the female as power flows through the both of them. Colonel Kane arrives and dispatches the second male, who is reverted to his bat-creature form. He throws Carlson the weapon, and Carlson is able to have the wherewithal to impale both the female and himself simultaneously on the blade, releasing a shockwave of energy that blows the roof off the cathedral. The action doesn't kill them, though. Still embracing, Carlson and the female slowly ascend on a column of energy back to the vampiric ship, which then departs from Earth and resumes its normal path following the comet. Kane watches in slack-jawed amazement as credits roll. Damn! So, where do we begin with this? Well, let's start off by saying, at least as far as I'm concerned, this movie doesn't have a ton of negative things, and actually has some really interesting, you know, points to make. For starters, the story itself has come a long way. Always refreshing, and obviously something we can attribute to O'Bannon, we are, essentially, starting our story off where almost all other sci-fi horror movies end. The hero, in this case Carlson, after waking up the hostile entity and having it destroy his crew one by one, heroically sacrifices his entire ship to blow up the organism and then abandons the vehicle, assuming he himself will not survive the encounter, but is thinking of the greater good as it comes to protecting humanity. That explosion would be the last thing we would see in any other film. In this case, all of that sacrifice was for nothing. The three aliens have completely survived, and the true horrific plans have not even yet begun. That is fantastic storytelling, and it's a great way to kick off a film. I have to say, after seeing both versions of this film, I've, I've watched the standard U.S. theatrical release, as well as the international cut, which is an additional, I believe, 16 minutes longer. Uh, I have to say, by paring down those initial space moments, I think the boys at Canon might have been onto something by cutting it down. It's a really entertaining story. The visuals are gorgeous, but it does take too long with everything going on, all that extra, I'll call it, space grab-ass that's happening between the astronauts, it just bogs the story down. Again, it looks gorgeous from an artistic standpoint, but all the artistic camera work and special effects can't make up for the fact that it's hampering the start of all the mayhem and action that people have come to see. And I have to say, I'm personally not alone in this assessment. In 2008, Hooper was being interviewed by the Toronto Star, and he himself admitted that the American theatrical cut of the film, these days to him, he actually likes it better, quote, saying, it's tighter. Another wonderful thing about this film, I, I gotta say, I don't really have too many feelings about the vampires themselves, although sidebar. I have to say this, for all you prudes out there who wish to make a big deal about the nudity of this film, 
It's all three of the vampire characters that are nude for the entire run of the film. May was not singled out to be the naked one while she has two clothed henchmen. All three of them are in the same boat. So if you're going to take umbrage with on-screen nudity, that's fine. But you have to be mad about all of it, or you can be mad about none of it. I don't want to hear any of these selective complaints with their weird sexism complaining that there's a naked woman but saying nothing about the naked men. Okay, back to reality. So, I have no strong feelings about the vampires themselves. I mean, don't get me wrong, May is fantastically easy on the eyes, but the real horror of this film comes from the terrified, drained, those who have been infected and are starting to display it. The shriveled husks that stalk the streets attacking healthy people, as well as each other, they're a work of art. They're done through creative puppetry and practical rod effects. They're haunting to look at. They're meant to be indeed alive, but trapped in dead bodies that barely function. And the only thing they're capable of doing is mounting a desperate, last panicked rush towards another living being in the hopes they can steal back some of that life energy before they'll explode into powder and ash. For fans of this sort of rod puppet zombie, it was really life force and oddly enough Return of the Living Dead, ironically a movie directed by Dan O'Bannon released this same year that made use of these techniques to chilling acclaim. Do yourself a favor, see this one, see that one. The effects are amazing. Something else I've always enjoyed about this film. Again, we're talking about, you know, the first really big role that Patrick Stewart had in a major motion picture. Now, he had been in other movies. I, I'm trying to give him this due. Prior to this, he had a small supporting role in films like Excalibur in 1981. And in Dune 1984, he, he had the role of Duncan, but a lot of his role was cut back. So you have our favorite Shakespearean actor turned Starfleet captain. And he likes to point out himself that Life Force is the first time he got to share an on-screen kiss. But as Patrick Stewart laments, that on-screen kiss was with Steve Railsback, <laughs> which is all the funnier. But in typical Patrick Stewart fashion, he was a class act about it and finds the humor in that scenario nowadays. So where does this film go wrong? So even with the cut for time opening sequences, the pacing of the film seems to yo-yo back and forth between an action-packed sequence one moment and then into weird, off-putting, quiet conversations that don't quite feel like they actually belong in the same film. And again, this is not a film or a story that is bad per se. Rather, it's a film that those who are not used to watching films of similar genre exercises, um, they're going to find this very hard to get into a groove with. Now, O'Bannon turned a true Lovecraftian-inspired pulp novel into a higher art form and made it into real cinema. 
and he gussied it up with some science, some sci-fi, some modernity, but at the end of the day, you're still making this vampire picture that wants to pretend it's not a vampire picture, even though its title is originally going to be The Space Vampires. Which again, all this together adds another level of weird for the audience, who are thinking they're at least going to go in and see a space film, or maybe a horror film, and instead they've wandered into a hammer-themed horror film that creens into zombie territory, military film, and then ricochets back into the sci-fi genre again. By being this melange of genres, this film is very hard to categorize, and therefore, even for me, it's tough to explain to someone who doesn't know what it actually is. And think of it this way, Life Force is brand new, it's out in the theater. The descriptions don't really do it justice, which makes it really hard to choose what you would go and see, because you don't end up going with a film that you say, I'm not entirely sure what this is about, therefore, I'm not going to go see it. So I know you can most likely surmise, based on this month's theme, how this movie was actually received at the box office. So in spite of Hooper's clout that he had brought to this picture, and with all of Cannon's promotion, when Life Force opened at the box office on June 21st, 1985, it was to a palpable lack of excitement. Negative reviews abounded. Leonard Malton was the one kind reviewer, mentioning that it was ridiculous, but hey, it was also so bizarre that it was fascinating. Others were not so optimistic, such as Janet Maslin's review in the New York Times, calling it hysterical vampire porn. Silly, crazy, peculiar, these words were repeated in review upon review. I have to say, in spite of all of that, for the time, Gene Siskel, of all people, came forward to say that he actually enjoyed the film as a guilty pleasure for the year, and he gave it three out of four stars. I have to say, will wonders never cease? The other big film that weekend? Ron Howard's Cocoon. One could live a hundred years and never think for a moment that Matilda May's voluptuous form on the silver screen would get trounced by the image of Wilford Brimley, Don Amici, and Hume Cronin skinny-dipping in a pool with glowing alien pods. Milk-white buxotic curves versus a sea of wrinkled creases. I don't understand you, Reagan America, and I don't want to. Life Force only managed to earn $11.6 million against its budget of $25 million. But it would bounce back over the years as a cult film and develop a loyal following. I know, I saw when I first rented it back in high school, and I thought it was pretty fun and different. Hooper himself was stung by the negative reviews, but according to him, he just tucked it all into the back of his mind and moved on to his next picture that he wanted to make for canon. And that would be his remake of Invaders from Mars, an attempt to forget about everything that had just transpired. Years later, upon reflection, Hooper did admit that it was one of his favorite films, noting in the same interview that he wasn't just talking about his own filmography, he meant one of his favorite films, period. Period. 
it was great times, you know, it was good. It was being able to, uh, to say different things with a larger budget. And uh, I thought, you know, I'll just go, I'll go back to my uh, roots and uh, I'll make a 70 millimeter hammer film. There's something really cool about that for me. The version of Life Force screened here at the LSCE was the Scream Factory 2013 Blu-ray DVD combo pack release, and it came loaded with extras. You have director's commentary from Hooper, featured conversations with Hooper himself, May, Railsback, theatrical trailers, TV spots, still galleries. What more could you want? The multi-format double disc can be purchased on Amazon for a going rate of about $13.80, and I would argue that's a hell of a deal for what you get here. Now, I just wanted to point out, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you to purchase films. We just feel it's very important to continue to support physical media, so the companies that own the rights to these fine prints are going to continue to release those excellent cinematic content that we so crave. And at the end of the day, isn't that really what you want? And isn't that what it's about? Seeing fun films for yourself. Besides, what do you have to lose? This is an excellent film and is well worth your time. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. If you like us, please follow us on our Facebook page at The Linden Street Cinema Experience and recommend us to friends. We're also on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at LSCEP. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple podcast user, please, we would greatly appreciate a five-star and a review. We are featured on Podchaser.com. That's a podcast database for creators and listeners of podcasts alike. Check us out there. Give us a like if you would, and a review if you could, please. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to be even more personal with us or wish to contribute to a segment on the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there, everybody, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there. Thank you.